All right, welcome in. My name is Alex Duvall. If I sound vaguely familiar, I am the co-host of the Royals Farm Report podcast, also on the Royals Review Radio link. It, uh, if you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts, um, you may have heard my voice on this channel before. I'm going to be hosting a new big league-centric era of the Royals Review Radio podcast here for Royals, Ro- Royals Review Radio part of the SB Nation's network of podcasts. Uh, again, my name is Alex Duvall. I am joined today by Jeremy Hakaius Greco. Jeremy writes for Royals Review as well has been made some appearances on podcasts in the past. Jeremy, how are you doing? I'm doing great. And thanks for having me, Alex. Yeah, absolutely. This is uh, We're recording here on Sunday afternoon. Daniel Lynch just fired eight shutout innings in his return from the minor leagues. Um, I was a little surprised they called Daniel Lynch up. Um, you know, he had some hit and miss starts in the minors. Like I'm looking at his game logs right now. Five innings, one run, five innings, no runs, four innings, four, five innings, seven runs, six innings, one run, five innings, no runs, five innings, seven runs, two innings, eight runs. And then in his last starts at AAA, he goes three and two thirds, does not allow a run, strikes out six. I was watching that start rain got in the way of that one so he was way better than three and two-thirds innings I think he would have had a really good outing that day if it weren't for the rain and then his last time out this last Tuesday in Omaha five and a third three runs six strikeouts no walks he is only walked three batters in his last four outings his control has been really good he looks like he's turned a corner Jeremy I want to get your thoughts did you were you able to watch the game today I, I actually was. I wasn't sure what I was getting myself into. I uh, I wrote the recap last night, and so I was just looking to see what he just kind of glanced at his stats from minor leagues because I knew he was starting today. Um, and, and I saw that that ERA over five, and I was like, well, um, you know, he had a he had a zero ERA when he got called up the first time, so you know. Uh, who knows what will happen, but I, I wanted to watch because, you know, he's he's a pretty big, he's a pretty important piece for the Royals, uh, uh, their future. And and I was really glad I watched because that was, uh, he was honestly, he looked like a completely different pitcher from what we saw when he was last in the major leagues. And I was extremely impressed. Agreed. The I know there was a the bit about him tipping his pitches. And from the from the gifts we saw of our guy at, at Royals June, um, on Twitter, you could tell there were there were some pretty clear instances where Lynch was tipping his pitches, and then the Royals seemed to agree. They sent him down, had him iron out some kinks in his delivery, seemed to pretty well agree that he has something to work out in his delivery, whether it's tipping or rushing through something or whatever. He seems to have ironed that out completely. He was completely dominant against Detroit. He only struck out four in those eight innings. But he didn't walk any, and he had induced all kinds of weak contact that may as well have been a strikeout, right? I mean, these yeah. guys weren't teeing off on him for the most part. They were all kinds of lost. And one thing that I was really happy with is through his fastball 60% of the time, one thing I've been hesitant on with Lynch is that while his off-speed stuff is immaculate in, some, in, in certain ways, his fastball at times can be a little hittable. And he threw his fastball a lot today. He threw his changeup a lot as well. It didn't even really use his breaking ball too much and totally shut down a Detroit Tigers lineup that, while yes, over the course of the season has not been good, we're 8-0 since the All-Star break coming into Kansas City, and he totally annihilated that lineup today. So was really happy to see that. Like you said, he's a major piece moving forward. Like if Daniel Lynch and Jackson Coar and Brady Singer and Chris Bubich aren't fixtures in this pitching staff somehow, whether it's in the bullpen or in the rotation – this team's future is is muddy at best. Um, I know the offense is – it is what it is. You have Witt, you have Mondesi if he plays. Witt Jr., Prado, Melendez, you, you have guys coming, but the pitching staff is what they've invested the most in. The pitching staff is what's going to have to carry them, and it was really good to see Daniel Lynch turn the corner today. Yeah, the, the thing that impressed me the most was, like you said, those zero walks – that he gave up in eight innings today. Walks have been a huge problem for the Royals all year long. Um, innings have been a huge problem for the Royals all year long. It was an important start for the team 
Um, if if we really cared about wins and losses, it would have been a, an important start as they're not going to have a day off this week. They had to use almost the entire bullpen last night. So to go eight innings uh, was really huge there. But the the zero walks, he just had great control today, it seemed like. And even in his first start when um, we nobody knew he was tipping his pitches yet against Cleveland or or you know whether he was tipping his pitches or not, I felt like his control was supposed to be his calling card coming out of the minor leagues. And it just didn't seem to be there for me. It felt like he was missing with his fastballs up and away and he was missing with his breaking stuff low and in. Um, and the, the breaking stuff he was able to uh, throw for some first pitch strikes. I know you, he didn't throw a lot of them, but he, a few times he just, he would toss up a curveball or a slider or something and it would just drop in the strike zone strike one. And, uh, and that was great to see uh, just getting ahead of batters and, and not walking anybody is just, I love it. I love, I hate walks and uh, I love to see this guy just come over here and, and really show off that command. Like you're saying. Yeah, you, you are right. And that the command was part of it. And it's not just general command. It's the ability to command everything that he throws. That's part of what makes his off speed stuff. So appealing is that he can put it in the zone pretty regularly, or he, at least he showed that ability in the minors. Like you said, gets up to the big leagues, no command of anything whatsoever today was significantly improved we're gonna have jeffrey flanagan join us formerly of mlb.com here in a little bit and i want i want to talk to jeffrey specifically about how this team is going to roll into 2022 the 2021 kansas city royals are kind of already written i mean they're definitely not making the playoffs they are probably almost definitely not getting back to 500 so really it's about what can you do the rest of the year to get into 2022 Daniel Lynch, obviously a big part of that. Hunter Dozier is another piece to this that can't be forgotten because they gave Dozier a big contract. Dozier, while he's able to physically stand at third base, first base, left field, and right field, (laughs) is going to have to find somewhere, or maybe he doesn't have to find a place to play because maybe the idea is, Dozier, you're going to play every day at a different spot every day while we give different guys days off. After his 2019 season, I really kind of don't blame the Royals for the contract they gave him. At the time, I was a big fan. When they announced the contract, was it five years, 25 mil or something like that, four years, 25 mil? I was a big fan. Um, I, I still think it was the right move in hindsight. Clearly was not a great move as of like a month ago because Dozier had been awful at the big leagues this year. Even now, with a really red-hot July, a weighted runs created plus of 75, meaning he's 25% worse than league average, and a war of a whopping 0.00. In July, Hunter Dozier has been much better, hitting 351 with a weighted runs created plus over 160. He's not that. I don't think anybody expects him to be that. But what Dozier has to be, in my opinion, for all of this to work, is he has to be what he was in 2019, where the weighted runs created plus is 123, and you're worth three F war over the course of a full major league season. I'm curious, Jeremy, if you think what we're seeing from Dozier in terms of, and and by the way, the broadcast loves to make excuses for Hunter Dozier. It was his (laughs) thumb. He played too long. He shouldn't have been playing, blah, blah, blah. Are you buying into the renaissance he's having here in July, at least to the point, that we could see 2019 Dozier again in 2022? Well, it's hard to say. At the beginning of the year, I felt certain he was just hitting into some bad luck. It reminded me a lot of actually 2019 when he started off the year, just could not buy a hit, but he hit line drive, hard line drives to straight at outfielders constantly for about a week. And then he kind of broke out from that and then hit for the rest of the year. Um, and I thought that was what we were seeing again this year. And then it just never got better. We went into May, we went into June and, and like you said, he's finally starting to come out of it in July. And, and I, I do think that Dozier has that potential to still be a good hitter. I actually kind of buy the whole, uh, the whole thumb thing, um, uh, affecting his swing. My problem is why did it take so dang long for him to figure it out? Where, where were the, I, this is actually something I wrote about uh, yesterday. 
um, was where were the coaches? Why weren't they figuring out that he'd altered his swing? Um, the broadcast crew had figured out that he was pulling everything. So between between if the broadcast crew figured it out, surely he knew and the coaches knew that he was pulling everything. So they should have been looking at his swing to say, Hey, did, did anything happen with the swing that's making him pull everything? Uh, and, and I, I don't know if they did and, and for, for however long until July. And that, that frustrates me. Um, hopefully he's learned from this. Hopefully the coaches have learned from this and, you know, uh, we'll see if uh, the same coaches are even around next year for it to matter for them to have learned something. And the thing is, too, we get all these excuses for Dozier that at some point you you either have to perform or not, where one year he goes to Mexico, gets really sick, loses like 20 pounds in the offseason. It takes him a while to get back and going. One year he gets COVID. One year he breaks his thumb. And then the next year it's this. And in 2022 – the expectations for the Royals are to win and they don't have to win like playoff level, at least for my expectations, but my expectations all along this season is next year, you better go 500. And if it's not 500, you better be 80 and 82, like worst case, you better go 500 next year or people are going to be, if not losing their jobs really close. If Hunter Dozier comes out next year and has the next thing where maybe he has like a, like a legitimately, tragic incident with his ankle right and he comes out and he doesn't he misses april he sucks in may but by june gosh darn it here comes hunter dozier it's like we can't have this every single year at some point the best the best ability is availability you have to be able to be on the field producing and i get it he really has had some bad luck but you can't be that unlucky all the time like eventually we just have to see it so while I buy into the changes he's made being real, what I would like to be able to buy into is that going into this offseason, I don't have to worry about Dozier getting COVID or a virus back slash bacteria in the water he's drinking or breaking his thumb or falling out of bed wrong, right? I don't want to have to worry about that. I just want to know that when they pencil in Hunter Dozier on opening day next year, wherever he's playing, that he's healthy and he's ready to roll because you can see – a legitimate difference in the offense when he's available and he's not available. And I don't know. I just, I, I agree with you. I buy into what's happening, but I want to be able to buy into the fact that it's going to be something that is consistent and sustainable at the beginning of 2022. I guess my big thing uh, to, to kind of counter your point a little bit is that if he is going to have something like that, then the team needs to accept that it's happening. Like the thumb. Why isn't he on the injured list? When he went out with the concussion, he'd been struggling before that. They could have let him go down to the minor leagues. It wouldn't have even been a demotion to have a, a, a rehabilitation stint, uh, you know, in AAA to work on something, figure whatever out um, and make sure he's 100% healthy. And they brought him right back immediately. And, it felt like they were just really, really pushing to have him in the lineup, even though he wasn't 100%. And I, I would like to see the team, you know, give him the space to get healthy so that when he, when he does play, he's a hundred percent and we can count on him. Uh, like you're saying, you want to be able to count on him. I want to be able to know that if the team is putting him out there, we can count on him. And if we can't count on him, then the team isn't putting him out there. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. It's, it's got to be one or the other. It's got to be at full strength or not at all. Because this year, maybe. I mean, you just gave him the extension. I don't think the Royals' realistic expectations were to make the playoffs. Like, they can say that. But internally, I think they knew this would be more like a 2013 season where it's like, get to 500, best case, show everybody you're ready to roll next year. So, so I get it this year, but next year, agreed. We can't we can't come into 2022 with a injured Dozier in the lineup every day. It needs to be either waiting to get healthy or hopefully just being healthy and ready to roll. So and yeah, go ahead. And, and hopefully they'll uh, they'll have you know the depth to to feel confident to do that. Guys like uh, Bobby Witt Jr., Nick Prado, MJ Melendez will be will be ready to go and to uh, you know to take over some of these spots in the lineup so they can go, Oh, well, you know what? If we go a couple weeks without Dozier, we're not 
completely lost. Maybe Adalberto Mondesi will be healthy. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, and, and they'll have someone to fill out the lineup and not just go, well, now we're batting uh, Nikki Lopez fourth because we have nobody else. Yeah, Nikki Lopez, by the way, um, I, I've run out of good things to say about him. Sent down, begin the year. Mondesi gets injured right away. Come up, have the best average and on base on the team. Does he still have the best on base percentage of the team? Like, I really think he does. I think so. he does. I mean, I just checked in, last night, it was 362, and he didn't play today. I mean, it I was, I was, incredible. I was honestly, I knew he was playing better this year, but I didn't realize how much better till I saw that OBP. Yeah. Um, that was a better on base percentage than Carlos Santana right now. I mean, that's yeah, just, that, it was eye opening. I was, I was shocked. And he plays, he doesn't have any power, which is a problem, obviously, but he plays enough defense at premium defensive positions, middle infield that you can, I think you can live with that. If he's the only guy you're playing without any power. Well, he's got a 100. I mean, he's right at league average in terms of offensive production and he's got the most. Yeah. He's got, he's got more F4 right now than like with Merrifield. Yeah. The, the problem, the problem with the Royals lineup isn't, you know, Nikki Lopez batting ninth. That works. That part's good. Good job. The problem has been, you know, Jorge Soler, Hunter Dozier, and extended slumps from multiple other players. Yep. Coming up on the other side of this break, we're going to talk to Jeffrey Flanagan about some of these guys and really how they affect the 2022 team. Because, again, the 2021 Royals, as much fun as it was to watch Daniel Lynch today, really after the sixth inning, I was like, okay, like when do we go to the pin? After the seventh inning, I was like, okay, it's time to be done. Like, this is fun, but there's always next year, right? And then they ran him out in the air in the eighth, and I'm like, I'm not having fun anymore because I'm watching Daniel Lynch. I mean, he, he was doing great, but I was like, it's the, I don't know. I just kept thinking about his arm more so than I was the game today. So as much fun as this year it could still be for the rest of the season, especially if they call up Bobby Witt Jr., I'm more interested in how does this team get to the point in 2022 where we want them to be? Because right now, there are some holes in this lineup that will not allow them to be there, specifically in center field, specifically at DH when it's Jorge Soler or right field, wherever that's coming from. And they're going to have to figure something out. So I want to know what Flanny thinks about this team, how it affects next year, and does he really buy into the fact that the Royals can be a 500 or better baseball team next year with not only what they have in-house, but the options they're going to have in the in, – in terms of acquiring players within their reach to go into next year. So coming up on the other side of this break, we'll be joined by Jeffrey Flanagan, the four, former Royals beat writer for MLB.com. All right. Jeremy and I are now joined by Jeffrey Flanagan. Jeffrey Flanagan was the Royals beat writer for MLB.com for a number of years. I don't have that in front of me. Flanny, how long were you with MLB.com? I joined them in uh, 2015. I've been with, uh, obviously, with the Star for 20 years and then Fox Sports uh, Kansas City for, I don't know how long that was, seven years, too. So, uh, yeah, with uh, .com, it was about 15. That's awesome. And MLB.com now has has brought in Annie Rogers, who's done a great job this year as well. So you can keep following the Royals beat over MLB.com, even now that Flanny's gone. Uh, Flanny, how are you enjoying retirement? I love it. I mean, it uh, it was kind of weird at first, um, and I, I, I really kind of stayed glued into the Royals like a beat writer would, and then I kind of backed off a little bit uh, once the weather got better and started golfing again. It's the, the hardest thing, obviously, is to find, because I retired early, finding friends to play with because um, they're all still working. They kind of go, hey, dude, I'm working. I'm sorry. I can't, like go have a cocktail at two in the afternoon. So, you know, it's, uh, it's pretty, that part's pretty strange, but uh, I'm enjoying it. I kind of feel that as a teacher, I'm, you know, I get my summers off and if it's yeah. not my teacher friends I'm with, if I, you know, reach out to any of my other buddies who have desk jobs, it's like, you know, I'm kind of on my own at the golf course every now and then, but uh, Flanny yeah. Daniel Lynch goes out today, eight shutout innings. I mentioned it over at royalsfarmreport.com and on, Twitter at Royals Farm several times that, you know, my opinions of Daniel Lynch 
didn't quite meet the hype that was coming out on him from camp, uh, both last summer and then even in spring training. It is clear that the Royals love him, and I don't just mean the front office and the coaches. Every player I asked, we had Nick Heath, Richard Lovelady, Grant Gavin. Um, I can't remember who the other hitter we talked to was. Oh, Nick Prado. Everybody we asked, who's who's really standing out at camp? Who's your favorite guy to watch in camp? And every single one of them said Daniel Lynch. So obviously being in, as, as plugged in with the team as you have been over the last several, several years, uh, even since uh, Lynch was drafted in 2018, can you, I mean, can you speak to how highly they think of the kid? Because I think as, as, as high as the praise was, people were pretty disappointed with his, his results early on, but today was pretty on brand, at least from what the, what the org has been selling us. Yeah. I think, you know, when you talk about, but talk about him, you, you should include Brady Singer and Jackson Kowar. I think all along they felt that Kowar and Lynch probably had the highest ceiling in terms of potential. Uh, they thought Brady Singer was the most major league ready uh, because he was uh, as competitive as, as a big leaguer could be. And I think they just thought Lynch, you know, the upside to, to him and Coar was off the charts. And we saw that obviously today, you know, no walk performance, you know, pitching a little bit more to contact, getting being around the plate more often. Um, if you can throw, you know, what impressed what impresses me about him and when I first saw him uh, in 19 and uh, we obviously didn't see him in 20, but uh, he, he was able to um, change speeds on his fastball uh, so many different ways. I mean, he, like even today, you would see 91, 92, 96. And then, I mean, it, it just throws a hitter off. And I, I didn't think the Tigers ever felt comfortable today uh, up against him and a lot of, there's a lot of weak contact. So um, I, I think that after what happened to him earlier this season, um, it certainly validates the Royals faith in him. Um, and he's definitely one of those guys along with Coar who could project out to be a number one, number two starter. Coar and Lynch, their first three outings in the big leagues are, you know, a little dissimilar in terms of how they got the bad results, but in terms of just, you know, maybe don't ever look at those results ever again. We're pretty, pretty similarly bad. Coar has been even more dominant at the AAA level than Lynch has all year. I assume then you're still pretty confident with his ability to turn it around and be a big league starter. A hundred percent. I, I, to be honest, I mean, this is just me and a couple other scouts from other teams who've, who've talked, I've talked to about Coar is of all that group, that whole pitching crop that they drafted on uh, 18 and 19, he had the highest ceiling. I mean, because this, this is a kid, um, you know, when I saw him in spring training, he was at 99. I mean, he was probably overthrowing. He was hyped up. But if you get a starter um, who can go six, seven innings and hit 99 consistently late in the late in the game, um, and with his 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 breaking stuff, that's pretty good. Now he's still got to put it together, obviously, because uh, like Lynch, like you mentioned, uh, when they got up here, it was nothing short of disaster. Um, but some of that too, I think. And I talked to some of the Royals players texting them um, in the last few weeks about Kolar and, and about Lynch was they became the, the Royal staff became a little obsessed with the possibility of them tipping pitches. And I, I think that kind of got into the minds of both of them because it made them think about how they were starting their deliveries. And it's kind of like a golf swing. If you start to get mentally uh, challenged about how you're going to start the swing while well, your whole swing's messed up and, so they've kind of had to fight through that. And I think the Royal staff has kind of moved on from the possibility of them tipping pitches and, and maybe just attributing to those bad starts as just being young and being inexperienced. And uh, I, I think today, again, like, if, you know, this definitely validated that, that Lynch wasn't tipping pitches necessarily. It was just a confidence thing and being around the plate more often. Um, and then with Kowar too, we saw, I think it was his last start. Was it in Oakland or something like that? And I mean, he, he couldn't, get anywhere close to the plate. I mean, he was missing by three, four feet. Uh, it was painful to watch. And that's not tipping pitches. That's just total lack of confidence and lack of command. So, um, uh, yeah, I think that really the future for those two is really bright. And, and, and Singer, too, he's 
taking some lumps this year and, and he's got a little fatigue right now, but he'll bounce back. He's just too big of a competitor not to. I actually agree with you about all three of those guys and Singer even. I know the, the ERA is not good. It's kind of hard to work around that. But all of his peripheral numbers are still in really good shape. I would argue that there have been times he's been a little unlucky. And if you look at his FIP, FIP 3.82, you know, that suggests that there could be some some heading in the right direction for him in the future. And I think the Royals, as much as they they sold us on the idea that this team was going to be really competitive this year, was hinged on a few things. One, Adalberto Mondesi that I don't have the energy to talk about at the moment. B, these this young crop of pitchers and the struggles they've had early on and the struggles that singers have had or you know depending on what you look at for singer i think it's kind of led to this team not living up to what they thought they could be obviously heading into 2022 this the the success of the team and whether or not they can be 500 or or maybe even a playoff team is hinged on these on these young arms leading the rotation if Danny Duffy isn't here, you're looking at Brad Keller, Brady Singer, Lynch, Coar, Bubich, Carlos Hernandez. Do you believe that the pitching rotation they have in-house, assuming Duffy doesn't come back, because he may, but the guys who are already under contract next year, do you think they can lead a team that can be 500 or better, or do you think there are still additions that will be made from outside the organization to put somebody maybe at the front of the rotation. I, I think they've got enough in-house and, and not just in the rotation, but also in the bullpen. Um, we've seen a lot of really, you know, Jake Brents has, has been a really great surprise and uh, a great addition. And, you know, you got Stamont and, and Barlow and you go down the list there. My biggest concern isn't really the young R's. My big concern is the everyday lineup. Um, you know, one of the reasons why they've struggled so mightily this year is, they've gone most of the year playing with essentially a six man lineup, maybe even five and a half because you haven't had Mondesi for most of the year. Soler and Dozier have been a wall. So you're playing in the American league with, you know, every team can bomb it and you're playing with a six man lineup. And really, like I said, maybe five and a half because Mickey is not a power hitter. He's a, he's, I, I love him as a defender. I love him as a guy off the bench, maybe not a, an everyday player. So Maybe you're playing with a five and a half man lineup in the American League, and you're trying to win games. Um, it wasn't pitching necessarily that or starting pitching that was killing them. They couldn't score runs, and in this little recent last week burst, they've been putting up runs. You know, so Larry and Dozier have finally showed up. Um, they'll be so much better if they ever get Modesty back, um, and if he can stay on the field. Uh, now you're competing again with a nine man lineup. Um, to me, that's the biggest concern going into 2022 is what do you do? H- how do you get a lineup that's going to consistently score runs? Um, I think their pitching will end up being fine. Keller looks like he's right at himself. Um, I, I think Singer's going to be just fine. He's learning things. Uh, I look more. I don't necessarily look at the analytical numbers. I just watch the game and look at look at his stuff. Is that stuff moving? Is it what what's the, the hitters will tell you everything, you know, and every pitching coach will tell you that. And. How are they responding to him? And this year, as opposed to last year, um, they kind of saw things coming from Brady Singer. They could predict when he was going to go to his sinker, or when he was going to do this or that. And uh, I, I think he's learning from that, and he will learn going in the future. And Coer and Lynch are going to have their ups and downs too, but I think Keller's going to be fine. Bubich has been what he is. I think he's a, a four or five starter, at, you know, probably at the best. Um, and a lot of young arms that we haven't even talked about that are coming through the system. And one of them will probably pop into the, to our uh, vision uh, and, and be a big help. And as long as they can keep that bullpen um, throwing well, um, that's a place where I think they'll probably make additions much more so than the starting rotation. I do want to ask you about the offense really quick about Singer. Did you see his comments the other night about that, having a changeup just doesn't matter if he's commanding his fastball and slider that he'll be fine, that it wouldn't matter if he had a third pitch or not. Yeah. And um, I, I could, I could feel a lot of co- the coaching staff cringe uh, because he's going to have to get that. I mean, you just can't be a two pitch pitcher unless you want to pitch out of the bullpen. Um, so 
there you have it. There's your choice. There's your options because these are big league hitters and they're, they're, they're already guessing right on him. So he's going to have to mix, get more to his arsenal. Bottom line. Yes. He's got to get more. So the offense next year, does the offense, is it, is it predicated in any way on, in a bounce back from Whit Merrifield because Whit Merrifield by, I think most accounts is having a down year offensively from what we've seen the last few years. Do you think this offense, in order to compete, has to have Whitmer a good Whitmerfield in it, or do you think that the the rumors that he could potentially be traded and getting two guys that could potentially slot into a lineup in some way? Do you think that does more for the lineup, or do you think having Whitmerfield and and obviously having the best version of Whitmerfield would be great, but? Do you think that it's A, likely, and B, the best choice? Or do you think the, the occasional rumor that maybe he really could be traded is, is more likely to help the team in the long run? I think, you know, if, if I were GM, I would keep Whit Barefield. And that's been Dayton's stance since I've known Whit and Dayton, you know, in the last four years, three, four years. Now, things have changed a little bit. With this season, there was, uh, as you mentioned earlier in the show, there, there was a lot of high hopes for this team. And I was one of them who thought that, you know, I, I didn't expect Dozier and Soler to just fall flat. And I didn't expect necessarily Monesty not to be a factor at all. <clears throat> but I, I thought they would be competitive and they weren't. So that changes the equation a little bit as we enter this final week of July. Um, <clears throat> is it, There's going to be interest in Wit, And I think uh, from both the people I've talked to in the front office, they're thinking hard about what to do with him. But if you took Whit Merrifield out of this lineup, um, it would it would be devastating. Um, and not just what he can do numbers-wise, but his leadership role with the younger players. Um, they all look up to him. <clears throat> they all see a guy who toiled in the minors for a long time, rebuilt himself, got his chance, and became a two-time All-Star. So he's he's the type of role model that they want around. And that matters a lot to Dayton. It matters a lot to uh, Scott Sharp and, and the rest of the front office. Those things they look at. And that's the argument against not trading him. And he he is, yeah, he's getting what is he, 30, 31 now? That's yeah. that age, that's that age where everyone starts to wonder, oh, okay, he's gonna start to decline. But he's in such he takes such great care of himself. I think he's going to be one of those guys who plays really well into his mid thirties. I, I just believe that um, just how much he is committed to conditioning and what he does um, off the field uh, to be good on the field. Um, I would keep him. Now there's other guys on, you know, they've, they've got guys, they've got chips, you know, Ben and Tandy. I, I think, you know, of Santana, obviously there, there's uh, Greg Holland, there might even be a chance someone, some scout out there um, has seen Solaire heat up here in the last couple of weeks and go, you know what, change of change of scenery, I think we can fix him too. Uh, he could be a guy who could hit four or five homers for us in September and, and put us over the hump. He might be a guy you could deal. Um, so they, they've, they've got some things to think about in these final, whatever, six days. Carlos Santana is the next guy I wanted to ask you about. I, I can't imagine that there aren't teams that would love to have him in their lineup for a, for a playoff yeah. run, not just this year, but next year. But sure. as much as we talk about like Witt and, and, and Salvi and these guys, their leadership in the clubhouse, Santana seems like he should be right up there in those conversations. A, the way he approaches a plate appearance, but B, the, the joy and the passion that he clearly plays baseball with and the, the long career he's had. Like I would, I would have to think his name is in that conversation. So, while the price tag would probably be expensive, I mean he would also be a guy that with with Prado coming and with guys that could you know reasonably fill in for the time being and O'Hearn and McBroom, he's a guy that I think maybe the industry could see being moved, but that the Royals like I could see them really valuing Carlos Santana a lot. I think they do, but I think he's number one the number one guy to go right now because of just what you said is that they, they have a gap stop with, with O'Hearn and McBroom uh, and even Dozier could play first in a pinch. Um, and they're, they're waiting for Prado to get ready. So um, get some value for Santana. Um, he's not going to help this team this year, probably not next year. 
uh, get what you can for them. You know, that's one of the reasons why you sign these guys to begin with is these scenarios where if you don't, if it doesn't pan out the way you think it will in terms of wins and losses, you move them. Um, and the same thing with Ben Attendee. I mean, you, you move them, uh, even Greg Holland. Um, you know, it gets harder, I think, to consider moving guys like Scott Barlow, who I think is still got a bright, bright future. And he's good right now. And he's going to even get better. Um, those guys, I think, that are the foundations. Uh, because the problem with moving those type of guys is then you got to go out and try to find a replacement who's just as good. And you're not going to. So keep them. Uh, whereas Santana, you, 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 when you signed him, you thought of him as a possible rental anyway. So move him. You know, you're whatever you are, 13 games under 500, go for it. Uh, and same for a couple other guys in the lineup. So if Santana, then let's say, let's say you're right. They move Santana and we look at this lineup next year. And we, I, like I said, let's throw Mondesi's name in there. Cause we know he's going to be around. So you have some capacity of Mondesi, <clears throat> some capacity of An- Manuel Rivera, Salvi, Lopez, let's say Benintendi sticks around, Merrifield. The the biggest black hole that I see in this lineup is in center field. And there, you know, Michael A. Taylor, I think he's performed admirably, especially on defense. He's had, you know, just about everything you could expect from him offensively this season. But after him, like, I love Kyle Isbell, and I, I like Edward Olivares enough. But I don't think either of them can man center field every single day at Kauffman Stadium. Do you have any idea? Like if this team's going to compete, they got to fill that that gap. So, any thoughts on that, really quick about center field? Looking at the at the roster for twenty twenty two. No, that's a great point. A really great point because that's the position that that uh, the Royals front office thinks really hard about. I mean, that's why you saw Billy Hamilton a couple years ago. That's why you see Michael Taylor. Is that they want someone there who's going to man it? You're never going to get anybody as good as Lorenzo out there, but someone who's at least in the range of a Lorenzo, someone who can go gap to gap. And um, I, I, I like Michael Taylor. Um, I think he's done a pretty good job out there. Um, way above average, obviously. I don't like him as much at the plate. Um, I don't really like his arm that much, even though he does, he has collected some, some assists. Um, and, but they don't have a, like you mentioned, they don't have a viable solution there. So if you do, if you do move him and there might be some interest in him, well, then you got to go turn around and find someone in the free agent market on the cheap uh, this off season. So that's an issue. There's a big issue. And I agree with you about Isbell. I mean, terrific player hustles, lots of guts. <laughs> Is he an everyday center fielder? Uh-uh. No. Um, so and right now, there's no viable solution in, in the upper minors. So that's going to be a problem going forward. Last question, Flanny. We'll get you out of here. We're, com- we're coming to an end of an era, so to speak, with Gerard Dyson. They traded Eski to Washington, Greg Holland, Wade Davis. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's more than admirable what Dayton Moore has done, bringing those guys back to – be a leader to provide some innings. And also I believe Esky is going to get his 10 years of service time. Dyson got his Holland got his, I think Davis already had his 10 years, but you know, who was it? I think it was, Oh, it was Alex Gordon, Alex Gordon yesterday. And in the little ceremony they had for him mentioned that there's a reason these guys keep coming back. Mike Miner mentioned it when he signed that he felt like he owed it to Dayton Moore to come back and give him, you know, these last two years here. Um, can, can you speak at all to a, the, the end of that era that I kind of mentioned real quick and then b just, you know, validate what that, what that says about Dayton Moore bringing these guys back in a year where he probably realized this wasn't a playoff year, even if he expected to win more than they have to get these guys their 10 years of service time uh, for all the stuff they did for the, for the organization in the past. Yeah, and word gets around the big league baseball too about how organizations treat players, and um, the word's been out for a long, long time about how well Dayton Moore and his staff treat players here, and, and that's why Greg Holland resigned and uh, in the first place a year ago and came back again. 
and why Wade Davis wanted to come back. And you mentioned the other guys too. That's just how they treat players as human beings first. Um, now that's not to say that they're just going to go out and, and do a courtesy signing because I go back to when Billy Butler after 2014, he re- Billy really wanted to stay here and uh, Dayton wanted him too, but the numbers didn't add up and open came in their analytics. People just love Billy Butler and they, through what uh, three years, 30 million, whatever the contract was. And I, you know, Billy told me this conversation he had with Dayton, almost like a father saying, look, uh, Billy, you, you have to go. Um, you have to take care of your family first. I wish you could stay here for, I think they had offered him three for 24, three for 26. So like, we'd love to have you stay, but we can't go that high. So do what's right for your family. And at the end of that deal, We'll see what happens. Maybe you'll come back here. I don't know. But you have to do I mean, just that sort of like fatherly son stuff is what Dayton does with players. And they remember that. And you won't have you. How many times have you heard someone speak out against Dayton, you know, when he goes to another team or something like that? It just doesn't happen. Um, That's how good of a human being he is and how well he treats people. Um, And that matters in terms of free agent signing, because that's why a guy like Santana, uh, signed here. That's why they were able to trade for a guy like Ben and and, and um, Mike Miner wanted to come back so badly. Um, you know, we we forgot to mention Mike Miner might be a candidate too for somebody as trade bait too. So we'll see. Absolutely, Flanny. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I know you're probably living it up in retirement, so uh, I'll let you get <laughs> back to it. Let you back to the All golf right. course and the bar. So. Delaney, have a great day. Thank you again very much for coming on, and we will talk to you again sometime soon. Uh, Absolutely. Anytime. Thanks a lot. All right. Big thanks to Jeffrey Flanagan again for coming on. He did not have to do that in the middle of his retirement, so um, really appreciate him joining us. Jeremy, the the most, most noteworthy thing I thought he said was, that Carlos Santana is probably the first guy to go. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. I think Carlos Santana makes a ton of sense to trade, especially, ironically, there are some big contenders with no first baseman. Milwaukee has thrown every first baseman they could find and have had no success. New York, Luke Voigt isn't doing what he was doing before this year. Boston doesn't have a first baseman. It is, it's kind of weird to me how ironic of a fit that is and that he didn't get any kind of money, really. What, he get two for 17 with the Royals this offseason? So, I didn't even think it was that much. Something – I mean, it wasn't much. And he's been, I mean, arguably our best player, second best player this year, third best player this year. So, Yeah, you're right, two, two for 17 and a half. That's just insane to me that nobody else – anyway, he could be one of the first guys to go – I think that's that makes a lot of time, and again, I or sorry, I had a time warning up on the Zoom meeting here. I think it makes a lot of sense. Yes, I think it makes a lot of sense that he could go. But the next thing he said was that the the one thing that's going to stop this team from competing in twenty twenty two is the offense. So let's get your thoughts real quick on Santana. I'm trading him. Are you? Gosh, it. What really depends on trading Santana is do you think you can compete next year? And do you think Nick Prado is ready? And that Hunter Dozier is, is going to be himself. If you think, if you think you're going to compete, then you have to think about keeping Santana. Um, unless you think Prado and Dozier are going to be the guys. If you think Prado and Dozier are going to be the guys, then you can trade Santana and you can still compete. Um, I I hate to trade Santana because I like watching somebody who who's not afraid to to spit on a ball out of the strike zone, but uh, it it does make a lot of sense to trade him. So if the if there's an offer there, I think you don't trade him for like a bag of balls, but if there's an offer there for for somebody. Um, then yeah, I think they got to make that move. I agree. And I think there's a couple good systems. The thing with Boston is that makes a ton of sense. Boston is in first place in the AL East Boston, always chasing titles. 
there's a great fit there. I don't know who you're getting back. Like, I don't, I don't think they're trading one of their top five prospects for Santana and everybody after that in Boston. I'm just, I'm, you know, eh. so I don't know what you're getting back from Boston, but like I said, there's a lot of good fits there. I could totally see them trading Santana and then stop gapping it with O'Hearn and McBroom and Dozier until Prado's ready. And O'Hearn Another hasn't thing, been awful the last couple of weeks either. So right. you don't feel like you're necessarily completely throwing your line, your this year's lineup out of the window. If you do that. Sure. Yeah. I don't have, you know, a ton of positive <laughs> opinions on O'Hearn, but he also said he thinks Whit Merrifield stays put and that he wouldn't trade Whit. That's the one where <sighs> if you can get if you can get prime Whit Merrifield, I would much rather have prime Whit Merrifield next year than anybody they're going to get back in a trade, I think. Mostly because I don't think any team's going to offer up what the Royals are going to want. Mm-hmm. And so I really do believe that if they trade Whit, they're not going to get back the full perceived value. There's also kind of this weird limbo area where Witt has been significantly like 11% worse offensively this year than he has been. His defense has been great because he's getting to play second base. But when Kyle Isbell comes back, then Whit Merrifield – I'm sorry, when Kyle Isbell is up and Adalberto Mondesi is healthy, the only way to get Nicky and Witt in the lineup is there at second base. I just don't know. I, I – that's, if you guarantee me we're going to get 2019 Whit Merrifield, a 110 WRC plus, and he was only worth three F4 because he was playing right field instead of second base. But, you know, if you could guarantee it, then I would take it. I'll, I'll keep him on the team. That's fine. I don't know how you can guarantee that. Whit Merrifield is 32 years old. He's going to be 33 on opening day next year. I mean, are we 100% sure that we buy Whit Merrifield returning to form because that's the only way you can keep him in my opinion. Yeah. I'm looking at his stat page and I'm seeing, you know, his offensive production has steadily decreased for four years running now. Uh, you know, 2018, he had the 119 WRC plus and then 110, then 106 now 95. And, um, and, and you can live with a 95 WRC plus at second base but you can't do it in right field. And Nicky Lopez is giving us the same thing. And he's six years younger um, and under control for less money. Um, So really, yeah. Okay. It's not a terrible idea to keep with Merrifield if this is who he's going to be. Um, But you've already got a Whit Merrifield and Nicky Lopez. You don't need two of them. Uh, I mean, excuse me, you've already got a 2021 Whit Merrifield in Nicky Lopez. You don't need two of them. Now, like you said, if he's going to rebound, then okay, that makes sense. But then you're looking at, okay, well, you've got Dozier under contract. Where are you going to play him? Bobby Witt's going to come up. He's going to play third base, everyone assumes. Maybe they move him to center. That's a thing that kind of got hinted at but nobody ever he never really played there and he's not played there in the minors so i'm not really buying into it so probably third base um so then dozier's got to move into right uh and you talked about kyle isbell is somebody that they're high on who could play right field uh there's just not room for everybody somebody's got to go and whit merrifield makes the most sense to me to to trade out of that group because Dozier is at a low point value wise, um, and and Nicky Lopez has a certain ceiling that just doesn't make him appealing in a trade. I think. I agree, and it's a really tough spot because the Royals are going to look at this and say, "Well, this is the low point for Whit Merrifield too. Like this is the lowest his trade value's been, and contractually, maybe." But offensively, yeah, absolutely. And like you said, one thing that people don't talk about enough, in my opinion, is that Whit Merrifield's best two seasons offensively, 2018-2019, he had a bat- batting average on balls in play above 350. Mm-hmm. That's not sustainable. And when that bat- batting average on balls in play has come down, in 2017 it was 308, 105, WRC+. Plus. 
when it was 295 last year, 106 WRC plus. It's 295-ish again this year, 95 WRC plus. I just I think the Whit Merrifield we got in 2018 and 2019 was 99th percentile outcome, not the norm. And now that we're not getting 99th percentile outcome with Merrifield, he's very good. He was an all-star. I don't really think he maybe should have been an all-star, but he was. Um, maybe specifically because he plays second base. But if Whit Merrifield can't be, be your second baseman so that Nicky Lopez can be, by the way, Nicky Lopez leads this team in batting average, on-base percentage, and F4. Like So for those of you, like Flanny mentioned that he's a bench bat. I was like, are we sure? Like our best player is also a bench bat. Like I don't know about all that. Um, right now, I don't know how you can argue with taking him out of the lineup, and it significantly decreases Lopez's value or Whit Merrifield's value when he's not at second base. So I don't know. It's going to be really tricky. We're going to be back uh, at the end of this week to talk about the trade deadline passing. So next Sunday or whenever we record next, the trade deadline will have passed. We'll give you our thoughts on the trade deadline. Carlos Santana, Mike Miner, Michael A. Taylor, Whit Merrifield, Scott Barlow, Jake Brents, all of these guys either will be Royals or will not be anymore. And we will kind of talk about all that then. Uh, for now, Jeremy, where can uh, everybody find you on Twitter? I am at Hakaius, H-O-K-I-U-S. And uh, yeah, uh, just be careful if you if you follow me because I don't only tweet about the Royals. I also tweet about uh, anime and video games and and movies. So you know if you only want Royal stuff, then maybe look somewhere else. You can find me. I'm Al- again. I'm Alex Duvall. You can find me over at Royals Farm on Twitter at Royals Farm. Again, I run the Royals Farm Report Twitter account and the website over there. So. Um, Stay tuned. We will talk more about the trade deadline. We'll talk more about Whit Merrifield and the 2022 Kansas City Royals Club coming in the future because, again, this 2021 team can be fun to watch, but everything we watch now is 100% a reflection of what this 2022 team will be. So um, that'll be a little bit of a theme moving forward. Until then, uh, you guys enjoy the team. You guys enjoy your summers as we get ready to go back to school, and we'll talk to you again soon.